You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Hello, hello. I am your host, Rick Franzi, and this is Critical Mass Business Talk Show, Orange County's longest running business talk show. We have a great show planned with Stephanie Otto. She is the founder of Healthcare Mask Collaborative. But every so often, we bring on people who are both entrepreneurs, but also are doing something in the social aspect for the benefit of the residents here, not just in Orange County. And Stephanie's case, but in around the world, many cases. But uh, I feel good about giving the opportunity to not only get to know Stephanie as an entrepreneur and business person, but also as someone who's philanthropic and doing good work in the community. So Stephanie, welcome to Critical Mass Business Talk Show. Thank you so much, Rick. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So at the top of the show, I mentioned the name of the collaborative that you started. So take us back. What was your original motivation to create the collaborative healthcare mask. Absolutely. You know, it was, um, wow. Let, let's go back to those days when, you know, everything was uncertain, kind of dark, nobody really knew what to do or if they could go even go outside at times. So, um, you know, we knew there was a need for masks. I had researched, um, the use of masks and the effectiveness of masks. Um, there's been multiple studies, um, during the other SARS epidemic um, about what type of fabric was helpful in stopping um, these particles. So um, I had seen a video of a hospital in, in Indiana calling for masks. And I thought, my God, why would a hospital be asking everyday people to sew cloth masks? Or, or is, is this where we are right now? And it turns out, yeah, that, that was where we are. So I put together a Facebook page and the thing just took off. It just took off. I didn't have all the supplies I needed at home. So I thought I'll, I'll get a bunch of people together and we'll, we'll pull our, our resources together. Well, it ended up being so much bigger than that and growing. We did, um, you know, become an LLC. Uh, we ended up with over 200 volunteer sewers. Uh, we had a furniture store in North Carolina that was sewing a thousand masks a week for us and shipping them anywhere in the country. Uh, we just grew really fast. And, you know, there's a couple reasons why I think that was so successful. Number one, it wasn't just about the need for masks. It was really about people having to do something mm -hmm. that could keep them busy and calm their, calm their anxiety. And we knew that. And, you know, I always try, I've always tried my best to whenever I'm at work or in my, my political life, you know, trying to be people centered, because I think that's where a lot of success lies and thinking about these volunteers and how they're really stressed out and they've got families and they've got lives and they're worried about catching COVID. Um, and so we just nurtured them and tried to be as motivating and just that bright light, just kind of be that bright light during that dark time. So, so take me back to the, when you started to talk about your vision, how did you say it grew quickly? So, so how did you do that? Was it word of mouth or mm -hmm. what got, what it got it off the ground for you? 
Yeah, well, we were Facebook based and, you know, I kind of laugh about how we operationalized Facebook because we basically started operating in four different cities from people's porches providing and uh, fabric so that they could make these masks and then also having them drop off masks. And then we had healthcare workers, you know, we distributed to military nonprofits picking up the masks there. But the, the vision was, um, you know, we just, we just knew people were um, in need. And I'll tell you this one doctor had Facebook messaged me. And when the doctors started Facebook messaging me, it was like chills all over my body. You know, I thought, okay, we, you know, we really got a problem here. And, you know, when you have a doctor who works a, an, an entire shift during, you know, the, the early days of COVID, because we launched on like March 20th. Wow. Yeah. We, wow. we launched right away. March 20th, 2020. 2020. Jeez. Yeah. We launched right away because we knew. I mean, again, I didn't expect it to grow this big. Uh, we, we got to the point where um, someone had heard about me, a Navy veteran had heard about me um, in Long Beach. And he said, you know what? I heard on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier, um, I heard they have COVID and they're really suffering. And they were stationed in Guam and they had been in the news, et cetera. And so I thought, okay, well, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> and you know, you're, you're not working in person and you're kind of doing all of this online and you're not knowing who to trust. And you're like, am I really going to tell a bunch of volunteers to sew 5,000 masks for an aircraft carrier? How's this going to go? You know? And I decided to take the risk and sure enough, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Gingy Martinez came to my door and picked up 5,000 masks. We gathered them in three days and they flew them. The U S air force flew them over to Guam to that ship so they could get them because you got to remember even the military and even big organizations couldn't get masks. When you have a military that can get sick, you have, you know, a security problem. You have a security crisis if everybody gets sick. So we were very proud of that. Very proud of doing that work. So that, that is, um, you said it, so I, but I want to just touch on it again. Part of what I heard is, and, and I think there was a feeling when COVID first started that we were out of control and people didn't know what to do. And there was a lot of confusion about it. And what, yes. what it sounds like is you gave a purpose to a lot of people to feel like at least they're making some positive contribution to what is being uh, described as, you know, kind of like the worst health, the worst health crisis this country and globe have faced. Yeah. So that's pretty well, powerful. Oh, thank you, Rick. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think everybody wants a purpose and everybody wants to fill a need. And that's really what we felt like we were doing. And we were so excited and honored to be just everyday people being able to help out. And it really was like a wartime effort for us. We really right. felt that. We really, really felt that. And everybody was all in, using their own resources, um, people donating. We had Elastic that was, we had, you know, Taiwan was really well prepared with masks and they were donating them all over the world. And they had Elastic in that country and we, we just had trouble. We had some... And of course the prices went up and we were wheeling and dealing on elastic all the time. And once we figured out the right price, we, we had that dialed in, but we had a 
partner in Irvine have her brother drive in the middle of the night in Taiwan to get mask, ma uh, get elastic on a big old cargo boat to, to come over mm -hmm. here. So that was, those are the kind of stories that came out of that, that project. And it was just, where did the funding come from? Because the material, the elastic, everything, that's not free. I mean, you had to buy those materials, didn't you? Or have it donated? We, some sewers just like picking out their own fabric. And that was part of the joy of sewing is picking out their own fabric. And, mm. but we had big um, fabric companies donating. Um, we had, like I said, the furniture store uh, in a uh, furniture. I shouldn't say stores. It was a, a, they made furniture. They were, and they had all the fabric there. And so people donated it. People donated it. We didn't buy fabric but we had to supply elastic. We knew we couldn't get mass made unless we gave people elastic because it was not available. So we had to find it. So what was the life cycle for the collective then? T tell me about how that happened. Absolutely. So, you know, in March, we were focused on healthcare workers. Um, it could be a nurse who wanted like five masks, you know, it could be a hospital that needed a thousand. It could be chalk. It could be, you know, we focused on healthcare. Then um, once healthcare started to be able to get some of these more paper masks, um, and you know what they did a lot too, is that people say, oh my gosh, the hospitals didn't wear cloth masks. Well, yeah, they did, because guess what? When they left work, they didn't have masks at home because mm -hmm. they were short. And the other thing they did is at work, they would wear the paper mask and then they put the cloth masks over it because the hospitals were absolutely rationing masks, paper masks. And those paper masks lose efficacy after time. So that cloth mask would help lengthen mm. the time that you could wear, you know, the, the, the paper mask. So, um, so yeah, so we started there, then we moved to, um, we did first responders. We did some to the sheriff's department. We did, like I said, military, we did March air force base. Um, we did, um, Pendleton hospital, camp Pendleton. And then um, once people started to regain um, and we started to see masks coming on the market and mass suppliers supplying masks, we went to nonprofits. There were tons of nonprofits like in, you know, the, the in mid county um, who just had suffered from their fundraising efforts. And we could help a little bit by giving them masks. And some of those were healthcare related and some of them weren't. Some of them were like um, Southern California hospice we provided. Um, you know, and then we moved on to then eventually we started helping internationally. And a lot of this was just contacts and partners in the group. Um, we sent mass to Peru. We sent mass to Venezuela. We sent mass to India. India had a horrible um, outbreak and we sent, oh my gosh, I think it was like 7,000 mass to India. And I always tell people, I'm like, look, if you have the contact, I'll get you the mask. You're going to have to find out how to get it there, you know? Mm -hmm. And we did, people stepped up and they donated and they said, I want to do that. I have a, a friend there or I have a partner there or I have a nonprofit there and we'll, we'll pay for the shipping. So that's how we did it. Well, that's a, uh, that's an inspiring story of the difference that one individual can make in in the world, frankly, by a vision and then implementing it. And um, I, I wanted you to be able to share that story with our audience because for me, it was inspiring when I first met you. And I want to give a little bit of time here for you to share it. But I know that that's not the first time 
you saw a need and you kind of created a program. I know within the Women's Voters of Orange County, you started a program called Observer Corps. That's right. Yeah. Well, League of Women Voters has been around forever, right, in our country. And League of Women Voters Orange Coast, which is our local uh, League of Women Voters here in coastal Orange County, um, we saw a volunteer need. Um, We saw a need in the county to observe local government. And I, because I am a former um, city councilwoman, um, I trained uh, volunteers to learn how to watch, you know, city council meetings and what's going on and to get some of these uh, volunteers engaged in their community. And uh, it was a great program. It's still going on. It suffered a little bit because unfortunately, public meetings have really taken a hit in during COVID times. Uh, different local governments have stumbled a little bit on how to provide accessibility to public meetings if they're not doing them in person, if they're doing them in Zoom. And so um, that's been, you know, another challenge of COVID. Uh, But the point of the program is for government to be accountable to the people. And for the, the government cannot be accountable to the people unless the people are watching it. You have to be involved. You have to watch it. And this was, um, you know, people, you know, volunteers go in, watch the meeting, answer certain questions, and then the report is kicked back to the council, and they say, "This is what we saw at the meeting." And then mm-hmm. the report's made available for for press or anybody who wants to to you know expound on it. But um, yeah, so that was the point of the program, and many <clears throat> many boards were observed, uh, county boards, uh, the uh, Orange County Board of Education and local cities in the, in Orange County. Yeah. So I don't mean to get out on the thin ice too much, but how well was this program received by those organizations? You know, they're fine with it. You know, they've been fine. They receive it. We let them know, you know, we said, we say, Hey, we're going to be here. You know, I mean, that's government is better when more people participate. It really is. And, um, the League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan organization that, you know, wants to just provide information. Okay, so they're they're not going to stir the pot too much on on advocacy quite yet. Yeah. So um, you mentioned in that conversation that previously you have been a council person. People can see if they're watching the video that you have a poster behind you, and I know that you're currently campaigning for city council for Laguna Niguel. And I'm wondering first, why are you running for elected office? (laughs) I know everybody asked that question. Uh, You know, this is a passion of mine that has been for a long time. You know, I studied politics in school. I went to Penn State, studied international politics. Um, I just love government work. I'm kind of a little bit of a nerd in that way. And I love people and I love solving problems. And, um, you know, working with Healthcare Mass Collaborative just reminded me of the power of people and what we can get done. And I know that um, Laguna Niguel is a fabulous place to live. It's got amazing open space, great people, great community. But I always know that we can make things a little bit better. I'm a big advocate of, as you, you heard through my League of Women Voters work, of accessibility and transparency. And... I served on my city council before in um, Florida, before I lived here. I lived here in Laguna Niguel for 11 years, raised my two kids here. 
And um, I just know we can, be, we can be better and more transparent. We can discuss the issues openly with the community and we can arrive at really good solutions when we involve our residents. So that's a big passion of mine and that's a big reason why I'm running. So Stephanie, you, you said that democracy works best, government works best when the people are involved in it. And I could not agree with you more. I think that's our responsibility in, in a representative style of government is to be informed and at least involved and aware. It, it feels to me that uh, in some ways it's almost uh, an oxymoron in some ways because local government is the most accessible and maybe the most direct on people's lives. But in some ways it's the least for many people, it's the they're least aware of the actions that are going on. And so uh, I agree with you that transparency is important in local governments because some of the decisions that the council are making have direct impact on you as a resident of that of that city or whatever. So um, I'm wondering from your perspective, are there, and I don't want to have a platform discussion with you necessarily, but are there some things and areas that you see within Laguna Niguel that you as a council person would be uh, focused on or advocating for? Well, like I said, transparency in government, involving the residents more, discussing, um, really throwing things out there more. I'm not afraid to have the, the hard discussions and, and talk about things. We have two big projects coming up that could really change the face of Laguna Niguel. Uh, Laguna Niguel's yeah. basically been a bedroom community. You know, we have great uh, retail and small businesses, but we've essentially been a bedroom community save for the Chet Holyfield building, um, which has provided some jobs, but it's not fully utilized and the federal government's gonna be selling it. Um, so that's gonna, that is, you know, a huge property, almost a hundred acres. And it can really make, it will make a big impact on what goes there. And so we need to plan for the future. Uh, we also have the city center uh, project, which is over there near city hall. Um, that one's a lot closer to being done. We have a proposal and um, I'm waiting for that to come forward. Um, I know that uh, their city has aware of the project. They've got some information on their website. I'm really looking forward to hearing more public hearings on that and getting that rolling so we can all weigh in on, on how that looks. So far, it looks great. Mm -hmm. It looks like a great project. So I'm optimistic. I think people can't maybe appreciate the level of responsibility that a local elected official has, though. The amount of um, reading that needs to be done to be properly informed, the amount of meetings and conversations that have to happen uh, to, to make sure you're making the right decision, not based on either personal bias or a smaller group of, of vocal people who are influencing you. It's really, uh, in many ways, I think it's a we said this, I said this to you before, I'll say it on the air. It's like a part-time job with a full-time job's workload. It is amazing to me the, the, the reams of reports that sometimes, especially on environmental yeah. projects and things that you guys are responsible for knowing. Yeah. I mean, you have to be a good generalist and you have to listen to what your advisors tell you and what your residents are saying. And you have to be able to read some pretty technical reports um, and you just, you do have to rely on a lot of advisors and staff, but then you have to do your own research because ultimately city council people are accountable. We're accountable. We're the representatives, um, for the people. And if we just let, you know, city hall do whatever it wants and we have great people in city hall, 
So I'm not saying that, but we just, we are accountable. We need to be accountable and make sure things are in the best interest of residents. Great. Well, I've been, I've enjoyed uh, learning a little bit more about you and having this ranging conversation. If someone would like to learn more about you, how do they find you? Absolutely. Uh, well, you can go to my website, stephanieauto.com. That's my campaign website. And on Twitter, I'm Stephanie Auto LN for Laguna Niguel. Um, you can also, um, Healthcare Mass Collaborative has, um, you know, not doesn't have a need anymore, but you can also reach me about any topic at stephanie at stephanieauto.com. Well, thank you for being a part of the program, a valuable part of the Orange County community. And I appreciate all the philanthropic work that you've done over your career. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Rick. And I'd like to thank the audience for being a part of Orange County's longest running business talk show. Stephanie's appearance is episode number 1,338. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm Rick, R-I-C, Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. That's also my website, Rick. Franzi.com. And until the next time we have a chance to be together, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. Mm-hmm.